This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash nomis, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for November 10th, 2017. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, Gary King talks with us about an experiment to randomize the news in order to test the influence of small news outlets on the national conversation. And Catherine Matisik is here with a roundup of stories from our daily news site. Now we have Catherine Matisik, editor for our daily online news site. She's here to talk about some recent stories. Welcome, Catherine. Hi, Sarah. Okay, our first story is on brain implants. When a drug trial ends, if the treatment has been shown to be ineffective or it's not giving you the results you want, the participants stop taking the drug. But what happens when the treatment is actually an implant in their brain? Some trials have focused on deep brain stimulation with implants, and they have ended. What kinds of studies do this kind of thing? There are all sorts of studies out there looking at how deep brain stimulation, which is basically jolting brain tissue with tiny bursts of electricity, affects everything from obsessive-compulsive disorder to depression. Now that the equipment to do this in a much more targeted way finally exists, lots of private companies and even public funders are getting into the game. But the process itself is really expensive and, as you said, quite invasive. Yeah. It often requires drilling holes into the person's head and snaking metal electrodes into tiny nodules of tissue, which are then stimulated with electrical current. In some studies, researchers implant a battery somewhere else in the body that acts kind of like a pacemaker. And so, you know, that has to be recharged. It has to be maintained. Sometimes it even has to be replaced. And as you can imagine, that doesn't come cheap, especially when you're in a group that might involve, you know, like 10 people or a dozen people or Mm -hmm. two dozen people. In a trial. In a clinical trial. That's right. And so what happens after the trial whether it's effective or not effective, what's the norm? Do they just take all this equipment out of people? So that's the question that everybody is asking. Because simply put, there isn't a standard. Even though deep brain stimulation has been in development since the 1960s, that's something I found out today, and it was approved to treat Parkinson's disease in 2002, there aren't a lot of large-scale treatments involving these devices. 
so scientists launching new studies have comparatively little data to go on and lots of complicating factors. I don't know if you read about all of these, um, but, you know, for example, maybe each participant's brain is wired slightly differently. You know, where exactly do you put your probe? millimeters matter. And something else that I found out that was really interesting was that the placebo effect can be especially powerful in surgical procedures, meaning your results might not hold if you have an especially small group of patients. All of that can fudge your results. And if researchers find partway through a trial that the results aren't good, they might scrap the rest of the trial. After all, who wants to continue implanting devices that don't work? So most studies have agreements in which installation and maintenance are free through the duration of the trial, as is removal once the trial's over. That's a nice little package, right? But if patients want to keep a device like you suggested, Sarah, even when it's been shown not to work, they're responsible for everything after the trial is over. And that's kind of what triggered the story being published in Science, right? That's right. Um, It was talking about a trial that ended early in which uh, some of the participants want to keep their implants. Why would anyone want to keep their implants? If the study wasn't showing effectiveness, why would you want to keep something in your head? Well, uh, I like to keep lots of things in my head, mostly secrets. Um, (laughs) But getting back to this particular study, uh, which dealt with depression, and it did end early. I think they stopped recruiting patients in like 2012. 44 out of 90 participants wanted to keep their implants. As I said earlier, the placebo effect could be a really strong component of that. And it's hard to say that what failed in one patient couldn't work in another. Millimeters matter, remember? One of the patients who wanted to keep her implant included one former high school principal who had grappled with severe depression for more than 40 years. After getting the device, she said it was like she was living in a different world. She could finally feel joy. If your problems are so bad that you're willing to get a couple of holes drilled into your head, you're probably willing to do a lot more than that for a treatment. This is a tough proposition, though. I mean, the implants need to be looked after. Someone has to pay. This is this could be a significant medical need. Is this going to be a, a bigger and bigger problem as these implants come online? That's the big question now. Who is responsible for overseeing and paying for this kind of long-term care? Just replacing one of those batteries I mentioned can cost between 20000 and 50000 wow. before, And that's before insurance. But good luck getting insurance to cover an experimental therapy that isn't approved by the FDA. That's one thing the researcher heading up this study is trying to do, getting insurance companies, hospitals, and charities to pony up the money for ongoing care, or at the very least, discount it. Another question is who oversees the care? One of the funniest but also most affecting quotes in this story came from the researcher herself when she said, What happens if I retire or get hit by a bus? And here's where I'm going to bum you out a little more. Ethicists are finally discussing these questions, Sarah, but there are no ready answers. Now we have a story on gene therapy for a skin disease. This is a case study, Catherine. We don't see a lot of these anymore, but there aren't many cases of this rare skin disease. What is it? So the common name of this disease... You know, the first time I heard it, I thought it sounded like something out of a fairy tale. Um, Kids who have it are called butterfly children. 
But the condition is anything but a fairy tale. That's because epidermolysis bullosa, or EB for short, causes the skin to blister and tear off at the slightest touch. Even rubbing your feet together could cause it to fall off. Different genetic mutations, and I think there are about 18 of them, can cause different forms of EB. The one in this story involves a gene that creates proteins that anchors the skin's outer layer, the epidermis, to the layers below. Without these proteins, the skin just kind of falls off at any bump or or scrape, creating chronic injuries that are really easily infected. Kids with EB have to have their wounds dressed every single day. It's a painful process that can take hours. And it's kind of a lonely disease because kids aren't able to participate in sports or the normal activities that kids would be participating in. And most forms of it are fatal. Some children survive beyond adolescence, but not many. Right. So in this one case, I mean, normally the treatment is just dressing the wounds, but researchers were able to treat it. How do they do that? So everyone is calling this a landmark study, even other researchers. And the boy's father has said the transformation in his son is is like a dream. When he took his son, uh, seven-year-old Hassan, into the burn unit of a children's hospital in Germany two years ago, doctors didn't think he would make it. He was missing nearly 60% of his epidermis, and his wounds were really badly infected. Then he started to go septic. Doctors moved to put him on palliative care. But then the boy's father asked if there weren't some kind of experimental treatments that they could try. So they reached out to a team of Italian researchers who just so happened to be studying the very mutation that caused Hassan's illness. They were able to remediate this with gene therapy. That's right. And so here's the key. The team used a patch of skin from Hassan's own body. It was slightly larger than a postage stamp to culture epidermal cells, which include stem cells that periodically regenerate the skin. They then infected those cells with a retrovirus that had healthy copies of the needed gene. They then grew the cells into sheets that I think were as large as, you know, nine square feet once you total them all up. The skin is a big organ. In several surgeries, they covered his arms, legs, back, and some of his chest in the new skin. After a month, most of the grafts took and the new skin had begun to regenerate, soon covering almost 80% of his body. And this new skin it didn't break or injure in the way that it used to. And so today, Hassan is actually attending school again, and he's even playing soccer, something that would have just been unthinkable two years ago. This is a long-term result. This is two years. And one thing the researchers were able to see that was really interesting was they put a marker in these cells and allowed them to track over time the transplanted cells. What did they see when they looked what happened with those. Yeah, so there were two main long-term things that they found, and one was what you just mentioned, that certain skin cells were key to renewing the epidermis. They're long-lived cells called holoclones. Those cells could be crucial to modifying this therapy for the thousands of other children who are affected. One other thing that they found, uh, which was great, because one big worry with this kind of gene therapy is that it might cause cancer down the road if the retrovirus inserts the right gene in the wrong spot. But the current study found no evidence that the insertion affected cancer genes in Hassan in any way. 
Last up, we have a story on croc bites. Sometimes archaeology is kind of like forensics. Millions of years after the crime. In a new study, researchers have shown that that far back, we probably can't tell the difference between cut marks made by stone tools and those made by... Uh, crocodiles? <laughs> yes. Uh, this is somewhat of a debunking, maybe just a, a tweak on what we already know. Prior research had suggested that old Lucy, a hominid from around three or four million years ago, or her kin, were using stone tools for butchery. What was the evidence for this, Catherine? So the evidence was V-shaped cuts in animal bones with linear marks called striations in the areas where Lucy and her people lived. So in this new paper, the researchers decided to recreate the crime, well, the butchery, and examine the cut marks made by stone tools and compare them with croc bites. How did they do this? They did this in two ways. And the first, as you mentioned, Sarah, if you'd prefer to call it a crime, (laughs) uh, was by butchering a sheep carcass with sharp stone flakes that were very similar to the kind of tools they were studying. They found that the cut marks resembled those found on two different fossils, one dating to 4.2 million years ago and the other to 3.4 million years ago. Then they looked at tooth marks from previous experiments in which researchers had captive crocodiles, they're the crocs, chomp down on sheep bones. When the researchers used a high-powered microscope to compare all the different cut marks, they found that the cuts were totally indistinguishable from one another. Maybe a butchery tool, maybe a crocodile. Is there not a third option for what could have happened to these fossilized bones? Of course there is. Okay. This is this is paleoanthropology. One additional theory that was suggested was trampling. That is damage to the bones by animals trampling over them. A lot of researchers say it's far too early to figure out which of these is the right answer. Or too late. Or too late. Very good. (laughs) After the fact. But here's why it matters, Sarah. If researchers could show that these were indeed made by the marks of human tools, that would push back the evidence of tool use by about 800,000 years which is a pretty big range of time, especially when you're looking at the capacity of humans to use their noggins to come up with clever solutions. All right. What else is on the site this week, Catherine? We have a story on the origins of writing and another on how wounds may heal faster during the day than at night. On Science Insider, our policy blog, we have a sad update on the great Vaquita rescue down in Mexico and an ode to the complicated legacy left behind by Lamar Smith, the retiring chairman of the U.S. House Science Committee. Thanks, Catherine. Thanks, Sarah. Catherine Matisik is an editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Jewel Sous Vide by Chef Steps. Are you a dinner party host looking for a foolproof way to get perfect meats, poultry, and fish? With Jules Sous Vide, every home cook can create chef-level dishes thanks to precise temperature control. Jules makes sure your food will never over- or undercook, so you're free to focus on your guests or whipping up some amazing sides. 
There are more than 100 recipes in the Video Rich Jewel app to help you cook almost every protein from meat to poultry to fish to eggs, plus desserts, veggies, and more. And if your guests are running late or your cocktails are taking longer than you thought, it's not a problem. Jewel is ready when you are. Your food won't overcook. Jewel, perfect food every time. To get yours, visit chefsteps.com slash Jewel and use the code magazine to get $15 off for a limited time. That's chefsteps.com slash Jewel, J-O-U-L-E, code magazine. This week, Gary King and colleagues bring fresh data to the longstanding discussion of the news media's influence on the public. Are journalists setting the agenda or following the crowd? How can you know if a news story makes a ripple in a sea of online information? In a powerful study, King's group was able to publish randomized stories on 48 small and medium-sized news sites and then track the results. He's here to talk to us about how they did it and what they found. Welcome, Gary. Thanks, Sarah. Great to be with you. This is a really unusual study. You were able to select topics and timing for news stories that were published in the real world. How were you able to randomize the news? Well, the hardest part was spanning the divide between the professional standards of the journalists mm -hmm. and the standards of science. I mean, journalists insist on absolute control over what they publish, and the scientists have to have absolute control over what's published and when. That's how you do a randomized experiment. Right. So spanning this always seemed impossible. And so the way we managed to do this was my, my two for, now former graduate students, Ben Schneer and Ariel White, and I spent about five years working closely with a, a large group of journalists. They wanted to know the impact of what they were doing. We wanted to know that. And we tried to figure out a way around this apparent impossible task. Right. So you were able to form a bargain where you have some control, they have some control, and everybody gets what they want. Well, actually, we tried to do it, and I think <laughs> we managed. I think we managed to do it with no compromises. So they got a hundred percent of what they wanted, and we got a hundred percent of what we wanted. What is that even called? <laughs> <laughs> well, we we thought of it as as a, a, a novel research design that solved a political problem technologically. Right. We think of it as this is a work of political science and a work of political science. <laughs> um, I could tell you how it works if you like. Sure, please. So what we did is we chose a broad area of public policy, like jobs or immigration. Um, we then wanted to make this study as realistic as possible. And one of the things you all do in journalism is you all publish together. Unlike in science, if one person publishes something, the other outlets publish similar things. We call that packed journalism. It's to get the story to the to your own readers. And so we couldn't do, do this for one media outlet. We had 48 media outlets participating. So the way we ran, we ran our study is we would have a broad area of public policy, we would take three or four media outlets and have them choose an angle within that broad policy area, a specific subject for articles. Then the subjects we asked them to write on were subjects that were not breaking news. They were willing to hold the feed, basically. We would then predict 
which two weeks would be relatively quiet weeks in that area. So if the president was planning to give a big talk on immigration in one of the two weeks, we wouldn't use that pair of weeks. Mm -hmm. So we predicted a pair of weeks. We then flipped a coin and we asked the journalists to run their stories, all three or three or four outlets to run their stories in week one or week two, depending upon whether the coin landed heads or tails. If breaking news happened and they absolutely had to publish anyway at the wrong time, they could do it, but it wouldn't be part of our experiment. That way they got full control and we got full control. Okay. Once one of these stories was published, you then looked at the reaction or conversations on this topic on Twitter. Were you looking for hashtags, keywords? Was location important? If I asked you to think of all the keywords related to jobs, you would think of some keywords and eventually you would fail to, to keep to keep thinking of more keywords. Mm -hmm. But if I showed you a list of 200 of possible words, you would easily be able to sort those into yes and no. And so our algorithm can choose the relevant keywords that are likely to be true. And then you as the human can choose the ones that are, are appropriate. So from this universe of keywords, you were able to figure out when this conversation, when this came up in conversation, the topic of these news articles? The broad topic area. So anything on immigration, anything, or, or if our topic area was jobs, anything about jobs or education or race, we would pick one of these very broad topic areas. It, we did not limit it just to the specific article. Okay. Were you able to show an increase in reaction to the pieces that were published in these outlets? Yes, actually we did. So what we did is we traced the effect from the article being published in three or four media outlets to clicks on their website. And then we could see people tweeting about that specific article. We could see people writing in social media about the general area of the article. And then our ultimate goal was the effect of these articles on the broad national conversation in one of these very broad policy areas. What you saw was an increase in the presence of these keywords on the Twitter platform. We saw an increase in volume about a particular policy area. If we chose jobs as the policy area and we had three or four media outlets publish stories about jobs a particular with a particular angle, then the volume of conversation about jobs in general, about any, t any kind of topic, would increase by quite a lot. How big is this effect? The effect actually was to increase the, the volume of discussion by almost 63% of a day's volume. It was distributed out over a few days, but that was the effect. So it was quite a big effect. The articles that were published in this experiment weren't just, this is the news. Some of them were opinion. So were you able to measure any effect of that opinion on the responses in Twitter? Yes, we did. And for this, we didn't use keywords. We, we measured the meaning of what the social media posts were. We found that the same intervention, the same three or four outlets publishing stories at a randomly selected time, changed the opinion of the national conversation by about 2.3% in the direction of the original articles. Oh. So that really goes against this common perception that people are locked in their positions and that their opinions don't change over time, even with new information being presented. Yes, I think that's right. Although, to be clear, we didn't track individuals. Mm -hmm. we, tracked, we tracked the content of the conversation. We know that the conversation changed, but it could have been different people choosing to participate because of this intervention. Okay. That brings me to my question about 
Twitter. I mean, is this a representative sample of the public? Can you say what happens on Twitter is happening nationwide? So Twitter actually is a much more representative sample of the public than it was before. But that's not actually the relevant population that we're after. We're not really interested in people who have opinions who are sitting in their in their bedroom not talking to anybody. We care about measuring the expressed opinion. We care about measuring the national conversation about policy and politics. If this were 100 years ago when we were doing this study, we could only measure the national conversation about policy issues by standing in the town square and listening to people standing up on their soapboxes and trying to persuade other people or listening to hallway conversations and writing newspaper articles. Now we have 750 million social media posts every single day available for research that are basically people expressing themselves and some fraction of them are expressing themselves about policy and politics. Mm -hmm. These are small outlets that you focused on. I mean, some of them I've heard of and some of them I haven't. You know, we're not talking the New York Times or the Washington Post or even, you know, CNN. Were you surprised by the scale of the effect you found in your findings? You know, would you expect it to be even bigger when you look at these bigger outlets? Uh, yes, we were surprised that the effect was as large as it was. Clearly, small media outlets are having an effect on what people are talking about nationally, which is quite amazing. The larger outlets probably have a much bigger effect. We didn't study them randomly. We didn't we didn't randomize what the New York Times and the Washington Post right. were, were publishing. Although we're happy to work on that, we just haven't <laughs> we haven't we haven't tried that yet. Or by the way, uh, the Science Podcast. Um, okay. <laughs> but we did study them observationally. So we did look at that and tried to see whether we could get a sense of how much bigger the effect would be. And it looked like it was a good deal larger, maybe a multiple of the effect. Some examples we found were about maybe five times larger. And then probably breaking news, um, maybe even larger than that. This is this is really surprising that you were able to find this, you know, manipulate the news in some way and then see a result. This just hasn't been done before. Are you going to try something else? Are you gonna, do we have to keep an eye out for you um, changing the news in order to do better political science, social science, that kind of thing? <laughs> <laughs> what everybody's always wanted to do is a large scale randomized experiment. And so we just haven't been able to do it before. That's what we that's what Ben and Ariel and I brought to this subject. So yes, we certainly ho we certainly hope to be able to do studies like this in the future. In fact, what we think we have built is not only a science article, but a platform on which we can run other experiments. Because we still talk to these journalists, we still have relationships with them. They are interested in the effect of what they do, of course. And we, we hope to be able to continue to work in this area. You do identify the outlets that participated in the paper, but you don't identify the articles that were considered. Is that is that just because you don't want people to go back there and, and point at those things and say they're not real? We, we were very sensitive to the professional responsibilities that journalists have. They were real. Mm -hmm. What we decided to do was to make our study as realistic as possible, because that was what was missing from all previous media experiments. They were incredibly clever, but they had to give up realism. So we thought, let's just go for realism, however long it takes, however difficult it is, let's just go for realism. And so our study wouldn't have made any sense if you could go look at one of these outlets, flip through the articles and say, oh, yeah, that's the one that, that these guys did, right? And in fact, through all five years, no reader, so far as we know, 
called up any media outlet that was part of our experiment and said, hey, what are you doing here? This is weird. No, not once. <laughs> Who's this Gary King writing this article? <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so, but we didn't want to call out an individual journalist or an individual article and get them extra scrutiny just because we ran this experiment. The fact is, at the end of the day, they had 100% control over what appeared at their outlets, and we had 100% control over what was in our experiment. Okay. Well, let's talk a little bit about the effect of what journalists do. I mean, what does it mean that when they write about something, even in a small outlet, that it does have an influence on the public discussion in some way? Does that say that the media landscape is a lot different than we that we think of right now because of the influence of these small players? Well, it's all the journalists seem to have a big effect. If the journalists from small outlets are having a big effect and mm -hmm. the journalists from big outlets are probably having a bigger effect, that's the really interesting thing. So we now know that they're affecting the national conversation, and we know that the national conversation has a big effect on the agenda. Agenda setting, political scientists have shown over long periods of time, has a big effect on policy. So these are very important consequences. So what does it mean? Well, it means that journalists have a considerable responsibility. I think of it as journalism is not just another job. I think you have an, an individual responsibility. And I think also we have to pay attention to the collective responsibility of the ecosystem of journalists and of, and of news media outlets. If the balance of ideological control goes in one direction or the other, that can have big consequences for, for the nation's democracy and for public policy. Okay. Gary, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thanks, Sarah. I really appreciate it. Gary King and colleagues write about how the news media activate public discussion this week in science. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other apps, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A-A-A-S.org join. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.